morning. Welcome to Deadly Days, Tales of Dark Fantasy. Today is episode 28. So, we're moving along. And I see there's more people finding it. Or a lot of... Uh, it's, gro- it's growing a little bit at a time. So, that's that's what I figured. A good story is hard to come by. Anyway, uh, these are stories that I have translated from the German. Most of them have never been uh, translated into English before, so this is a a good opportunity to kind of open horizons, I guess. I get these stories from four sources right now. That's going to be more sources as we get going, but I'm just kind of doing a round robin with four sources right now. The first source, uh, short stories by Hans Heinz Ewers. Second source, uh, short stories by Carl Hans Strobel. Third source is from Der Orchideengarten which is the first, the world's first illustrated fantasy magazine that came out in 1919. And the fourth source is a, a magazine called Cocaine that came out in the 20s in Germany and only went for a few issues. So anyway, th- those are going to be the main ones. If you want to read these stories or the longer novels and longer stories, they are available in print and a lot of them are available as uh, ebooks either at lulu.com or Kindle books under, you can look up Joe Bandel, Joe Bandel, my name, band, like a rock and roll band, E-L, or uh, lulu.com, lulu is l-u-l-u dot com slash spotlight slash anarchist banjo. That would bring you to my page of everything that I've put out that's on, that's on there. Uh, otherwise, uh, well, there's a lot of ongoing, ongoing things. Uh, I've translated just recently translated two stories by Paul Bassan that I really, really encourage people to get. Those are also available as Kindle books. So anyway, that's the short story aspect of it. Today's story. This is episode twenty-eight. Uh, today's short story is a longer story uh, called "My Mother, the Witch." by Hans Heinz Ewers. And it's said that he dedicated this story or to his, to his mother or whatever, that it's kind of, his mother was apparently quite a character in her own right. And she wrote stories and, and translated stories. So anyway, since this is kind of a longer story, I'm going to get going at it. And every now and then I'll be taking a drink just to lube up my voice. My Mother the Witch 
This is what Dr. Casper Crazy Cat wrote to his brother. Dear brother, thanks for your letter, the first in eight years. It could even be 10 or 12, and it certainly is an even longer time since I have written you. We hear about each other through our mother, and that is good because seeing things through her eyes has kept mutual harmony and concord between us. We have held only love and friendship toward each other. The few times that we do occasionally meet are much too short and allow only the smallest shadow of the relationship that we should have. If I so suddenly reply to your long and detailed letter, it is because I must. It is so you can become acquainted with some weighty and important grounds that need to be considered. You write me, dear brother, in light joy and enthusiasm. You are now almost 50, and like myself have known women in all five parts of the world. You are certainly entitled to have your opinion and to express it as well. Now you are engaged and will be married in less than a week. The young lady is from the best family, very rich, very beautiful, blooming with health and intelligent as well. You love her as a goddess. And even more, what else could a person ask for? You go on for ten passionate pages about how lucky you are. I believe every word, every single particular, and take nothing as exaggeration. On the other hand, your high position, your income, your occupation, and your good looks, excuse the compliment, but every time I visit Mother, I must look at your latest picture and listen to her enthusiastically sing your praises. She is rightfully proud of you, and quite truthfully, I am no less proud of you. So your decision to have her come live with you can be very joyous. Her age-old favoritism means nothing. In summary, I would not want to put the smallest cloud in the blue heaven of your happiness. I should celebrate with you and send you all best wishes in hopes that it can stay this way for you always. Instead of this, I beg you urgently and imploringly to rise above your engagement. Don't get married. You, dear brother, are as thoroughly healthy as I am. With such a healthy wife, you should bring strong and healthy children into the world, as many as you might wish, as many as I myself have wished for until now. There is something in our family whether it is on our father's or mother's side, it doesn't really matter. In any case, it is something worth deep consideration at this time. Our father was old enough, was strong and healthy enough throughout his entire life. Our mother is over 80 years old and known throughout the entire city for her astonishing physical health, intellectual vigor, and alertness. Nevertheless, it is on her account that I must warn you, dear brother. You know that a genetic trait is often not passed down from parent to child, but skips a generation. I am now afraid that this special genetic trait of our mother's might show up again in your offspring. I myself, dear brother, have three or four times been in the same exact position that you are in now. 
But then I didn't know what I know now. I didn't know about the amazing nature of the woman that is our mother. It must be a completely secret instinct that saves me at the last minute, prevents me from taking that final step. And now you appear determined to get married as well. Each time my conduct appeared completely senseless to all my friends and acquaintances. Yes, perhaps even insane. It was too extreme and turned my engagement into a hoax. I want to describe just one of these to you in a few words because it, is certain, it certainly is about this strange genetic trait. At that time, I was going to marry a maid on the next day. I could claim about her everything that you write in your letter about your bride. Only at that time, I had many other valid reasons for not getting married. I was without any means and had only been living free from debt for a little over a year. I believe I have told you about this before. My nerves were completely depressed for an entire month afterwards. Narcotics were the only possible way I could maintain myself. The truth was that it was this woman that I lived for, that I believed in, and that I loved. On the evening before the day of the wedding celebration, I went to bed with a strange feeling. Dear brother, you are now going to hear what really happened. I went to bed with the highest pleasant awareness that on the next morning my life was going to change. We are both, you and I, very good sleepers. Perhaps that is what keeps us so fresh. Two minutes after I pulled the covers over my head, I am fast asleep. That's the way today and has always been that way. This was one of the few nights in my life that I couldn't sleep. It was not because I was pondering over something. There was a stranger brooding inside of me, some deep, secret, slumbering thought that I was struggling to get out. I, in, in my awareness, could perceive it. I was indifferent to it, but had a strange curiosity about this thought and wondered if it would come out or not. This went on for a while, but it wouldn't come. Then I tried to get rid of it by thinking about other things. Naturally, the first thing I thought of was my bride. I pictured myself standing with her, pictured the bridal veil and the orange blossoms. It was in that moment I felt the secret thought play in my subconscious, even with my bride, with the bridal veil, with the orange blossoms. There was something that I needed to do. This thought quickly sprang up and crossed over the boundary into awareness, clawed its way into my brain and stayed there. Don't go to the justice of the peace. Don't bring her to the church. Don't marry her. For a small moment, I was terrified, but then the thought appeared so comical to me that I began laughing out loud. It occurred to me how unbelievably stupid, how absurd, how cruel, and how low it was. Would I make her so unhappy, perhaps drive her to suicide and myself as well? Would I do this to the person I love and who loved me as much and perhaps loved me even more? Even though my position in the world was not that great, 
It was sheer lunacy to hesitate even a second. Nevertheless, the thought stayed there, fixed and stubborn. Don't marry. I tried to think of reasons why I shouldn't get married, but found none. What always came to me instead was a resounding, yes. But the no, will-o'-the-wisp, circled around, appearing here and there, but never giving a good reason. I put out an honest effort to go to sleep, but it didn't work. I got up, turned on the light, put on my kimono, and ran around. I tried to read, smoked a cigarette, and then another. I went from one room to another, staring at pictures and at furniture, opened the window, and looked out. I tried in every way to get rid of the thought, but it would not leave me. It held me fast. Don't do it. Finally, I sat at the writing table and wrote a long letter to some woman I had once been in a relationship with, explaining to her why I could not go through with the marriage. It was a very stilted letter, completely overflowing with reasons why I would have no more to do with this woman that I had known for a year and a day. That was the first line I was aware of writing. After that, I wrote the entire letter, putting forth what she would say when she read it, and further, what she would say a few hours later if I came to explain to her why I didn't want to get married. Then I took a new piece of paper. I swear to you that it wasn't I that wrote, but still in my own hand, the feather glided over the paper. It wrote to my bride, It won't work. I cannot marry you. I don't know why, but I can't. My hand put this letter in an envelope and attached a stamp to it. My legs carried it to the post office and mailed it. I went back inside, climbed into bed, and was asleep in the blink of an eye. On the next morning, I realized I, re I remembered well enough what I had done. I was still consumed with the idea of escaping, so I packed my suitcase, went to the train station, bought a ticket, and left. That was many years ago. I have often deliberated over it, trying to find out why I acted the way that I did. Over and over again, I forced myself to confront the reality that I acted against common sense, destroyed my own happiness, and crushed the one I loved in the most cruel way. Still, at the same time, I could never lose the feeling that I acted in the only possible way and did the right thing, even though I could never find a valid reason. I could find only shadows. Another time, something similar happened to me. First and above all, I was determined to this time to get married. But no matter how resolved I was, the nearer the day approached, the more uncomfortable I became until I panicked and once more refused to get married. I have searched continuously for the unconscious reason behind my behavior and have finally found it. I consider it a very valid reason, unlike all the previous threadbare reasons in the past that I tried forcing myself to believe. I even once wrote a highly passionate refusal letter that ended in the sentence, I will not give up my freedom. I can't be imprisoned in a golden cage. Another time, 
but I, I, I don't want to bore you with memories of my life history. It's enough to say that I have continuously lied to myself and imagined this or that reason was the basis of my running away from marriage. I see today that all my objections and reasons were utter nonsense that prevented me from seeing the truth. Today I know where this involuntary resistance comes from that holds me back every time I try taking such a decisive step. I have been visiting our mother for over three months now. It has been a very long time since I've seen her. I don't have much else to do, so every day I spend many hours alone with her. Without this experience, I would have never discovered the true reason. All week long, I have been observing her. I, I once more began to have this same subconscious feeling that something was wrong and that I needed to search for it. I've searched and I've found. The answer is that you and I are not permitted to ever get married. The great possibility exists that the genetic trait our mother carries, the one that has skipped us, could carry into the next generation and our children could become what she is, a witch. I know you're laughing. Perhaps later you will make a sad face, shake your head, and more or less doubt my sanity. But it's the reason. For the first time, everything is clear to me. It was always right before my eyes, but I couldn't see it. This senseless, comical, and childish word, witch. It is not so funny. I doubted this understanding and myself, just as you will when you read this, but the understanding just goes deeper and deeper with each passing day. If you doubt what I say and still decide to continue, if I should fail in my attempt to explain the reality of the situation to you, I bear witness that if you continue in your heart's desire, you will commit what I consider a crime against humanity. If you marry, you will beget children and bring witches into the world. Naturally, you know as well as I do that this is not easy to escape from a spell of our mother's personality. Every child in the city knows her as well as every adult. When she goes out with her cane in the mornings, there is always a friendly man or woman on every street corner who will help her over the curb and pay attention that no auto, bicycle, or streetcar comes too close to her. When she goes shopping, there is certain to be some child off the street that will come up and ask if they can carry her packages for her. On the crowded streetcar, in the bus, or on the ferry boat, not only the men stand up to offer their seats to her, no, all the men and women compete in offering her their seats before she can sit down. The kindness of the attendants in the opera, in the theater, and the concert hall, as well as in the shops and guest houses, where we occasionally eat supper, is amazing and almost shameful. It is as if these people were trying to prove their friendship to our mother. Every evening when I go for a short walk with her, I am newly astounded. Gentlemen, lady acquaintances, or children always have flowers in their hands and hastily come up and give them to her when they see her. 
There is never a day that goes by without someone sending flowers in a vase or a pot to her house. I am employed every morning at watering these flowers, and it takes me almost 40 minutes if I'm lucky. I don't know if she has written you about her name days. For a few years now, she has felt that a single birthday in a long year is not enough and is determined to celebrate her name days. She looked them up in the calendar. As you know, her name is Johanna Nepomusia Herbertina Maria. Hubert occurs only once in November, and Johan of Nepomunk occurs only once as well. But all the other Johan days and Marian days, it is a true delight. She, she has explained that her she couldn't decide on one or the other, so she celebrates them all. Word soon got around, and ever since then, her family, acquaintances, and neighbors have flowers sent to her house on dozens of these name days. Her balcony, the one that overlooks the cloister garden, is a veritable flower basket. She sits in the middle of them, having tea with young people, painters, carpenters, musicians, singers, and actors, male and female. It is a wide variety of people, really, but the fine arts always sets the tone. They are always young people. She doesn't like old people. You and I, we are a little old for her, only she sees us still as her children, always as little children. Our old mother certainly acts like all these young people as well. The people are always saying that she must have a secret youth potion. Then they laugh. Naturally, she rules, permits no other will in the house besides her own. This concerns me because I am always getting punishment slips on a daily basis. Five marks because I'm late for breakfast. Twenty marks because of a mocking smile. Thirty marks because I don't find the coffee as excellent as usual. Ten marks because of a sullen face. It's cheap as she sees it, but I can never go a day without at least a fifty-mark penalty coming to me. Mother is very cheerful about the discovery of this new source of income. She has absolutely no sense of the value of money. She helps everyone in need when natural, while naturally making them feel guilty as a student. Then she gives back to you or me as a friendly settlement what she has so carelessly collected when we come for a visit. This is all very charming, and like any other, I fall under the spell of this old woman that we are permitted to call mother. Everything is harmonious around her, and any small mistakes only makes this entire picture more quaint and attractive. That is why this woman is... A little past eleven, she wanted to go to bed. I brought her to her bedroom, said goodnight to her, and went up to my room. I had forgotten a book downstairs, so a little later I went back down to get it. I came through the hall, knocked carefully on her door, no answer. She couldn't be asleep yet. I knocked again and finally opened the door carefully. The room was half lit, the bed undisturbed. I went through the dining room to the living room. 
I saw her sitting there in an armchair, completely dressed, with her elbows resting on the table, her head resting in her hands. Her eyes were wide open, staring vacantly into space. I entered softly at first, and then made an intentional noise. She didn't appear to hear me. At first, I was frightened. Was there something wrong with her? Then in the next moment, I calmed down. She was living and breathing. I sat down, too, a distance away from her on the sofa, and observed her. She didn't move. Her breathing was regular but not strong. Yet her eyes appeared to move as if they were watching some invisible thing moving in the room. I could have been mistaken. There was no light in the room except the light of the August full moon that fell through the wide open window. She sat in the middle of this silver light. I was as still as she was, waiting, waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I heard the grandfather clock in the hall by the stairway strike half past twelve. I felt a firm conviction that a rare secret was being revealed there in front of me, and I couldn't make any rhyme or reason out of it. Nothing happened. Nothing at all. Finally, she appeared to come out of the trance, sighed lightly once or twice, then laughed. She was unquestionably now fully awake. I saw her break off a few withered leaves from a geranium and throw them out the window. Then she turned around, without noticing me in the corner, and with firm strides went into her bedroom. I sneaked through the door and listened. It sounded like she was getting undressed and into bed. Then after a very short time, I heard the quiet breathing of her sleeping. I went lightly out of the room. It was not yet half past one. Her trance had lasted at least 35 minutes. I began my vigil the next evening. I stepped lightly into the living room after she had gone to bed and waited in my corner to see if she would come back, but she didn't. She did come back on the fourth night, however, not at the same hour as the first time, but a little later. Apparently, she was waiting, consciously or unconsciously, for the moon to come out. She stepped into the living room and sat in an armchair. Not the one she had sat in before, but one that was in the moonlight. This time, she was not as relaxed. Her hands gripped the armrests of her chair as she stared out into space. I know exactly how long the, she remained unmoving. It was for 36 minutes. Then she got up and went back into her room. Nothing happened again for several weeks. I understood that it must have something to do with the moon. So I waited for the full moon in September. She came again, and it was the same show in general as before. This time I noticed something that made things a little clearer for me. While Mother was in the trance, her long silvery blue hair was let down and bathed in the moonlight as it covered her shoulders. I made a clumsy movement, and it knocked two vases off the small table. 
Mother didn't stir despite the loud noise. Apparently, she hadn't heard it. Her body sat before me in the moonlight, but her spirit was many hundreds of miles away. After she had gone back into her room, I listened at the door like before. I suddenly heard her coming. I quickly turned on the light and turned to the cupboard as if I was looking for something. Mother opened the door. Did you forget something, she asked. Her voice sounded as it always does. She did not remember the somnambulistic condition that she had been in just minutes before. I said I was looking for my writing quill. She laughed and said she had forgotten how late it was. I gave her another goodnight kiss, and she sharply told me not to stay up too late. I better not be late coming down for breakfast. Apparently, she remembered nothing about her trance condition, or perhaps it had been going on for so long that she scarcely noticed the few minute, missing minutes that she had forgotten. Yet this somnambulistic sleep was so deep that she didn't waken at the sound of two vases falling off the table. It was also certain that in her half hour of rapture, her awareness, her ghost, her soul, whatever you want to call it, her life force was somewhere else. But where? That was something worth finding out. By now I've collected an entire series of odd details that I have very, very slowly tracked down. Several of them I have only now discovered, but I have known about many of them for years. I just didn't recognize what they meant. You know, dear brother, that we have many toads in our garden, very beautiful, huge toads with green and golden yellow eyes. I must confess that I share the partiality of our mother for these animals entirely. Do you remember when we as children put them in milk bowls? They were probably looking for grubs and angleworms. It always made mother happy when she, put, when she went out into the garden and a toad hopped into her path. You know how she occasionally spoke to these animals? But this is something new that I have observed for a week. I was looking for mother one evening at dusk to go for a walk with her. Then I heard her light voice in the garden. I went down. She was walking slowly down the path and leading an enormous brown toad on a silk cord like it was a puppy. She spoke to it. As I came up to her, she laughed and said, Liza has been naughty today and wool wouldn't work. Then she explained to me how all the little girls went around with toads on leashes. She untied the animal and set it carefully under the fly agaric mushroom near the large fern. Such a small sign, this mushroom. What reasonable gardener would allow poisonous mushrooms in their gardens. Our mother has fought with the gardener year in and year out that he must under no circumstances disturb these mushrooms. A day later, the gardener came to work on the flower beds and I asked him what kind of mushrooms we have in our garden. We have fly agaric, 
Giftreisker, Panther Mushrooms, Satan Mushrooms, and Spite Albling. They're all poisonous as sin, yet we don't have a single harmless mushroom growing in our garden. That got me to thinking I might need to examine our houseplants and flowers a little closer. They are really a complete mix. Some are harmless. Our mother has flowers and plants from all over the world in her house. That is obvious. I will take this opportunity to only speak of the ones she especially treasures, the ones that have been her favorites for many years. Do you remember, dear brother, when we were getting ready for Christmas and she would send us out to the cloister garden or the park to search for the white Christmas flowers under the snow and bring them back? The Christmas rose was the first flower of the year, and Mother always wanted it just as the hollyhock was the last flower of the year. As you know, they are both very poisonous. In the spring, enormous bushes of laburnum grow out of her vases. Later, she grows red foxglove and blue eisenhut. In fall and winter, big pots stand all over the house with cyclamen that bloom with the flower we call anemones, and the same with rosemary heath. Now, all of these flowers are very poisonous. Do you wish me to believe, dear brother, that it is just coincidence that all these poisonous plants are scattered around near the harmless ones? I might mention her nightshades and prize-winning hemlocks as well, even though they can be found in many homes. But where can you find the beautiful wolf's milk, heart's ease, or devil's eye? They grow here in the garden or in pots. She has these amazing flowers growing in the same pots with the abominable henbane. You must believe me, dear brother, when I say that you can search for a very long time before you will find these in another house. She treasures all of her flowers, especially her roses. But a full bough of the yellow blossoms and grapes of the laburnum is most certainly her very favorite. This strange partiality is instinctual. She loves these flowers for no other reason than because they are poisonous, but she doesn't give it a thought. On the other side, I have no objection because she has no idea of the poisonous nature of her plants and flowers at all. She does nothing with them. She was a bit astonished when I told her that the Christmas rose and the hollyhocks were poisonous. She simply would not believe me when I said the laburnum were as well. These things are no different than the secret discovery of her setting toads beside the poisonous mushrooms and plants that she loves so dearly. By the way, she doesn't do anything with these poisons. She touches the plants once in a while, kisses an especially beautiful flower, but she does that with her harmless peach blossoms, fuchsia, and giant snapdragons as well. The only poisonous plant she does things with is perhaps the worst of them all, the henbane. I have never seen what she does with it. 
I have noticed that she will occasionally take a pot into her bedroom with her. She has four. I must take a break, dear brother. Mother calls. Mother called. She wanted me to go to the zoo with her. She goes there often, and I can tell you, dear brother, that she thinks of the animals just like people. Every single one runs up and presses against the bars when she comes. Now, it is true that she always has a large pair of gloves and food that she brings along. This time, she had me carry a small sack full of ripe chestnuts that had fallen from the trees. She sent me out into the garden to get them before we left. The elephant, camel, bears, apes, the doe, and the stag, even the rabbits and guinea pigs, all know that she always brings something along. What is even more amazing is how they continue to be well-behaved even after her provisions are gone and there is nothing left. Some go without anything. But what about the affection of the animals she is not permitted to feed? Those that must eat fish or flesh, things she can't really bring along. I understand why the small raccoon leaps with joy when the old mother comes by his cage and gives him a piece of sugar. I've seen him cry almost like a human when she leaves. But I don't understand why the old marabou, a black and white carrion-eating stork that stands in his meadow on one leg the entire day, despising the human mobs that come by, suddenly remembers that he has two when mother comes by. He immediately begins a crazy faker dance and rattles out a melody with his beak. Why does the tiger rise up from his dark corner and come out pressing itself against the bars with hissing sounds? A man of goodwill could interpret it as purring. Why do the sea lions swim through the water, crawl on the banks, openly showing their joy at her approach? They know very well that mother has no fish for them, just like the other carnivores knows that she has no meat. There is only one animal in the zoo that doesn't openly show joy even when she brings its favorite treat. It belongs to the race of Andalusian mountain goats from the Sierra Nevada. It is an amazingly huge grayish-white buck. The fellow stays back on his rock and doesn't care at all who comes up. Whether the other mountain goats quarrel over the delicious treats mother gives them. She must call this old one, almost beg him to come. Finally, he decides, climbs very stiffly down from his rock, and comes slowly with deliberate strides up to the fence. He takes the entire piece of sugar, but as if he were doing her a large favor by taking it. He has a magnificent full beard, a large crumpled nose, and a pair of gray eyes. The short horns stand out high over his ears. The old fellow really looks almost human, like the great Pan himself. He stinks, that is for sure. And Mother gladly takes her eau de cologne, bottle out and sprays a little on him. By the way, don't think for one minute that this only happens at the zoo. It happens with all animals. 
She comes up to every dog and every cat and makes friends with them in a moment. So does every horse that stands on the street hitched to their wagon. The wild vines and ivory that climb our house and grow in our garden are filled with the nests of dozens of birds. It is the same in the bushes bushes and, and trees in the garden as well. When we eat breakfast on the balcony, we continuously have sparrows and black thrushes as our guests. A small red squirrel that lives in the cloister garden comes at an ungodly hour every morning and goes into mother's bedroom to get the nuts that she leaves on the nightstand. Mother says that he is her alarm clock. During the summer, a butterfly will once in a while fly through an open window into every house. It will certainly make use of the next opportunity to find its freedom again. But in our house, butterflies are always in the house. Several stay two, three, even four days. One, a gorgeous peacock butterfly, stayed for over a week in mother's living room. Yet another time we had a cricket in the room. It didn't come in by itself like the butterflies. On one of our evening walks, we passed by a bakery and heard its little chirping. Mother immediately went into the bakery and explained that she wanted to take the little thing home with her. He laughed and replied that he would gladly give it to her if he could, but the animal was very hard to catch. It had already been there in the bakery for several weeks. I tell you, dear brother, the small small black creature was the first thing we saw sitting on the floor. It quietly allowed mother to pick it up, put it into a matchbox, and carry it back home. Coincidence? You will say, dear brother, that it was all coincidence? I tell you most emphatically that it is not, that it is not, that it is something else. Every single one of these things that I have written about and shared with you might be coincidence by itself. But taken all together, can you still call it coincidence? So, that is Mother's amazing connection to people, to animals and to plants. You will now see some of the other things that she does. She doesn't say a single word about jewelry. She always wears a small black enamel brooch with your initials. Or are they mine? Anything else that she once possessed of jewelry, she has long since given away, or lies completely forgotten at the bottom of her jewelry box. You already know about the art that hangs on the walls and stands all over the house. The art pieces that Mother has collected over the course of her long life are mostly of animals and monsters. There are bronze and porcelain toads, snails, lizards, and others, but many are mythological creatures out of storybooks. She has a very large and beautiful statue of the Egyptian goddess Bast, you know, the one with the head of the cat. Mother claims that she can hear it purring and that sometimes it opens its eyes. The candlesticks on her desk, by her bed, and other places are bronze copies of the gargoyle of Notre Dame. I tell you, dear brother, 
that our mother is surrounded with all the wildest figments of Gothic imagination. They stand around you and over you. She has an intense liking for mythological creatures, especially mixtures of human and animal. There are now figures of Egyptian, Chinese, and Indian origin scattered throughout the house, but the Gothic ones seem to mean the most to her. She has entire portfolios with illustrations, engravings, prints, and photos of things she has once seen and been attracted to. It makes her very happy whenever she adds something to her collection. I would like to say that a few of the temptations of St. Anthony are amazing. She has a complete collection. What is significant is that she is not a book lover like Flower, who created these images. You will agree with me that Flaubert is certainly not light reading. Mother knows all about these devil sects, the Gnostics, Manicheans, Ophites, Marconists, and Priscillians. She knows that they are what they are called and even little things like how they celebrate the memories of their prophets and magicians. She knows their names, Arrhenius, Simon Magus, Apollonius, Valentinian, Marcus, Montanus, and others. She knows them well enough to converse about them in Flaubert's own words. If that isn't interesting enough, there is something else she finds just as interesting. What can a person say about her collection of brooms? In the dark, narrow passage that goes between the other rooms into her bedroom, Mother has no less than 43 brooms, new and old. I believe there is an example of every kind of broom ever made in our house. They are all resting like retired civil servants in rows and files on both sides of the narrow passageway. You can't see them from the stairs because of the curtain that blocks the view. There is certainly a much better place for such a collection. The great loft next to the kitchen that leads to the garden is almost completely empty and would be a good place for such a collection. You could hang hundreds of brooms there quite comfortably. But no, she presses them tightly together in the small narrow passage that leads to her bedroom. There are more. One or two brooms stand by themselves in her bedroom behind a small curtain in the corner where her dressing table stands. You know what a very capable and talented healer mother is. People are always coming and going from the house. She does not treat them as a professional, but as a friend. Indeed, mother always tells them that she does not know how much they ask, but they ask her, for every little bit of advice and then follow it faithfully. She has absolutely no tolerance of quacks and charlatans. Instead, she uses herbs, never on herself, but on the entire neighborhood, and she has a loyal following. She is very limited to what she does. She only cures corns, barley corns, warts, and freckles. For the corns, she prepares a brown paste. When you smear it on you, 
when you smear it on, you must pray the paternoster. The paternoster doesn't seem to help with the barleycorns, though. And the cure for them is somewhat complicated and requires the Ave Maria. She caresses the barleycorn with her wedding ring while slowly saying three Ave Marias. It works best when done by moonlight. Removing warts takes longer. The person with warts must come every other day for two weeks and get a greenish ointment put on the wart. While this dries, preferably in the sun, they must pray profoundly. This cure works beyond any question. I have seen half a dozen splendid warts disappear with my own eyes. Even more remarkable is her cure for freckles. She only makes it in the spring. The young girls during the last three weeks of April must smear the bluish ointment on their faces in the mornings and in the evenings and then say the Regina prayer a few times. I haven't heard of any young boys taking the cure. Mother counts among her patients not only devout Catholics, but the daughters of Protestants and free-spirited elders as well. She has learned their beautiful prayers and uses them at times like she uses the Pater Noster and Ave Marias. On May Day, the young girls must get up every must get up very early without saying a word and go straight to the garden. There they must throw themselves on the ground and rub their faces in the grass, bathing in the beautiful morning dew of May Day. After that, is another three weeks of ointment and Regina prayers. Then the freckles are gone. I tell you, dear brother, they are really gone, just like the barley corns, warts, and corns. Little Lottie, the doctor's daughter, swears that mother can do more than her papa can, that he doesn't know how to remove freckles. She gave a very lame speech about how he is only a medical doctor and not a corn and wart doctor. The doctor himself is very happy with his daughter's smooth face and takes the competition gladly, declaring that he recognizes mother's work and takes the Regina prayers and other foolery into the bargain as well. Mother has an entire chest full of dried seahorses. They are to be sewn into the petticoat and trouser bottoms as an excellent cure for hemorrhoids. Unfortunately, it appears that this remedy is not widely used in our city. I can't even think of any case that might be in need of a seahorse except for the old washerwoman. She freely maintains that it is an excellent remedy. All of that is child's play. There are other things much less harmless. Mother never tells fortunes. She never reads poems, never reads cards or other things. When the prophecy comes to her, she always calls it stupid stuff. At least that's what she wants us to think. She certainly doesn't do it very often, only a couple of times a year, but always with staggering results. It is constantly amazing to hear what the people say about her. When anyone comes to her that is really down on their luck, she will wish them something good, never something bad, and always just something.
a young sculptor had been coming to her house for a year, and through a coincidence, she learned that he was almost starving and had not earned a penny for a long time. When he visited next time, mother took him into the garden and told him that lots of luck would be coming his way. Naturally, he asked what and when. She only answered that she couldn't say, only that luck would come. She would wish him luck. In the course of a month, the artist sold five pieces of art at an exhibition and also received a commission for a a very large grave memorial and three portrait busts. He told me these stories himself. Mother never speaks of these things. He put it all together and believes that it happened the very moment that Mother wished him luck in the garden, that she was the cause of his luck. Now, I have solidly established that Mother did help his luck in a few of these cases. Two of the pieces that were bought at the exhibit were brought about through her. One was sold to a museum director she knows, and the other was sold to her banker. But what about the other three? And the commissions? Coincidence? Oh, certainly it is all coincidence. How does the story go about the professor that wanted to clarify the concept of miracle to his students? Consider this, he says to the class. I am climbing to the top of the highest tower of the cathedral in Cologne. Near the top, I suddenly get dizzy and fall. I land on the hard stone pavement, but nothing happens to me. I am intact, healthy, and don't have a single scratch. What would you call that? Little Moritz is by nature very skeptical and says, Coincidence, teacher. Very well, the professor comes back. It might be coincidence. But now on the next day, I climb the tower again. Again I get dizzy, and again I fall down without getting hurt. What would you call it now? Luck, answered the unbelieving Moritz. The patient teacher would not let it go. As far as I'm concerned, he continues, you can call it luck. But now on the next day, I climb the tower of the Cologne Cathedral again, and again I become dizzy, and again I fall down to the ground unharmed. I do this three, four, even five times. The air carries me down gently, and I land unharmed on the stones below without mussing a single hair. Tell me, Moritz, what do you call it now? Now I call it skill, the incorrigible Moritz answered. Truly, dear brother, it must be more than coincidence with mother. There must be some small element of skill involved. Unfortunately, our mother does not limit her skill to just wishing good luck on people. If she is really offended or injured by someone, she will wish bad luck on them as well. I would like to talk with her about it, but it goes right over her head. Besides... I only know what other people have told me. I haven't observed such a case for myself. Still, these people are of all classes and occupations. I have taken pains to ask almost everyone that comes into the house about it, 
from the workers and neighborhood children to their friends, the artists, professors, doctors, lawyers, and bankers, people of every different education and comprehension. They all shrug their shoulders and speak of coincidence, or shudder and speak of a secret skill she has. But none dispute the facts. For example, a housemaid that had done a lot of good work for Mother in the past stole some of her things and ran away. After Mother recovered from the shock of the theft and determined the extent of the damage, she declared that Kate, that was the housemaid's name, would have very bad luck soon. Less than ten days later, the corpse of the maid was pulled out of the Rhine. She had gone on a boating trip with friends, and the wave from a passing steamer had capsized their boat. The others were all rescued. Another time, there was a cousin that had borrowed one of Mother's books. Almost a year later, Mother found it in a used bookstore and bought it back. Mother felt very sick over it, not because of the lost money, but because it had happened before and she had been stupid enough to allow it to happen again. Three weeks later, the bookstore was broken into and valuable things stolen from the safe. They did catch the thief, but not before the stolen property was squandered away. There was a neighbor boy that Mother let play in her garden. One day, out of pure mischief, he cut down a birch tree. It was a little birch tree that Mother had planted herself and loved dearly. Less than a week later, he came down with scarlet fever and diphtheria at the same time. He hovered near death as both his parents came to the house very agitated. They had heard that Mother had wished harm on the boy. They knew of the mean trick the boy had done and were smart enough not to blame Mother at the least bit. They just said that he was their only child. Could Mother forgive him and have compassion on him? Naturally, Mother was very compassionate and soon crying with both parents. She sent them back home after telling them that their child would become healthy again. Our cousin Bertha was witness to this and explained to me that they went away full of joy and complete confidence at the truth of her words. After they had gone, Mother sat down, laid her head in her hands, and remained unmoving for around five minutes. Then she spoke with our cousin as if nothing had happened. She changed the subject completely. That same day, the boy's fever broke and in a short time he was healthy again. By the way, our cousin Bertha is one of those that Mother has wished bad luck on. She spoke of one particular experience. One evening she was supposed to pick Mother up and go to the concert with her, but something came up and she was an hour late. Mother was very upset about it. Bertha was certain something bad would happen to her, and very soon it did. On the way back to the house, Mother told her that she would soon become ill, but that it wouldn't be at all dangerous. A week later, without any apparent reason, she caught a chill. She told me that she had such a cold that she could scarcely see out of her eyes. I'm glad, she added, that I got off so lightly. These are only examples, dear brother. 
I could write many more pages describing one after another. Bad luck in business, physical and mental illness, all occurring naturally in every possible way. Then there are death curses, which, thank God, I can only ascertain in a very few cases. Is all this only coincidence, dear brother? Don't you think that perhaps it might also be a bit of skill, as little Moritz calls it? Mother herself appears immune to bad luck. She has written you about her auto accident, but she treats it so lightly and makes jokes about it. The story goes like this. On the corner of Marion and Kreutz, mother was crossing this traffic lane. A ten-year-old girl was leading her. Both were almost to the other side of the road. The child was already up on the sidewalk, and mother was just stepping onto the curb when an auto came speeding around the corner. It was close to the curb to avoid all oncom- to avoid an oncoming delivery truck. The driver saw mother, braked immediately, and steered to the left, throwing his machine against the delivery truck. It was too late. The front tire hit mother and threw her onto the pavement. She lay there unconscious near the child that was still gripping her hand. The child sprang up and screamed. People immediately brought the unconscious old lady into a store on the corner. Someone recognized her and immediately called for a doctor and an ambulance. Meanwhile, someone waved a couple drops of red wine under her nose, and a few moments later, mother came too. Her first concern was to brush herself off and then wash her hands. Then she declared that they should cancel the doctor and the ambulance, bought a dozen eggs, and went quietly back home with her little companion as if nothing had happened. I met them at the door. The child was still shaking from overwhelming shock and scarcely able to speak a word. Mother took down a book of fairy tales and gave it to her along with a bar of chocolate. I, myself, first learned of her adventures on another day. The automobile was completely totaled, the driver seriously injured. Mother visited him at the hospital. He is now well on the path of recovery and will, as the doctor says, be completely healed. He himself believes that he has mother to thank for his remarkable recovery and healing more than the doctor's. Sometimes in the evening hours, mother will sit in the garden and tell fairy tales to the neighborhood children. They sit around, staring at her with huge eyes and wide open mouths. I was interested in knowing which story she was telling them. Snow White, Rapunzel, the Steadfast Tin Soldier, or even Redcap? So one evening I sat nearby and hid behind a newspaper as if I were reading it. She didn't tell any of those fairy tales or any other fairy tale by Grimm, Bechstein, Anderson, Wilde, Papa Dumas, or Moosehaus like she told to us as children. It was not even a story that she told them. The children only call them fairy tales because they have no other word for them. They are more like very short lyrical word pictures, if you can call them anything but the effect they have on the children is simply amazing. 
When mother stops talking, the children just sit there for the longest time, staring hypnotized into the air, seeing the nightmarish images that the voice of the old lady has painted for them. Behind my newspaper, I wrote one of them down. It goes like this. There were once a dozen witches and wizards all sitting together at a table eating beer soup. Each of them had a long spoon carved out of the front bone of a dead man's arm. The coals glowed red in the fireplace. The candles smoldered, and from the plates came the aroma of a fresh grave. Then Maribas, the oldest wizard, laughed. It sounded like a bow scraping over the three strings of a broken violin. By the light of a candle, he was tapping on the cover of an old magic book where a fly with singed wings was running around trying to escape. The fly buzzed frantically as a yellow spider with a fat, hairy belly crept toward it. Then the wizards and witches flew out through the chimney, sitting astride broomsticks and fire tongs. Maribus led them laughing. After that, mother showed them a finger game. This is the thumb. It shakes the plum. Do you remember it, brother? Well, that's not what children hear today under the old pear tree. This is the thumb, fat old Bice, the landlord, from down on the Rhine. He is fat, cheerful, and smokes as he sits by the door of his pub, drinking good beer. This is the pointer finger, his wife. She is long and thin like a herring and screams and nags at him all day long. This is the middle finger, their son. He is such a tall fellow, tall as a tree. He wants to become a soldier, and then he won't have to be a brew boy. This is the ring finger, the nimble daughter, Katrin. She cuts onions all day. But this little one, this is Benjamin. He is fearful and such a crybaby. He howls like a little baby that is hanging between the teeth of a werewolf. Without question, any teacher would find such images completely unsuitable for young ones. It is also without question that the lessons they teach are certainly as unsuitable as well. But when mother describes these things, they blossom out into a romantic, magical world that is so vivid and real that the children see the fat base, see his wife thin as a herring. They laugh loudly at the tall lout of a son and at the nimble daughter that cuts onions. They cry with the little whimpering youngster that is about to be devoured by the werewolf. I would be willing to bet that 30 years from now, when they encounter a pot-bellied innkeeper, they will call him Thumb. Still, the most frightening thing that night by far was when Mother said, There were once a dozen witches and wizards all sitting together at a table eating beer soup. None of the children had ever eaten beer soup. There is no such thing. But each child could completely visualize and imagine how it tasted. 
witches and wizards exist in all fairy tales, but they always live very far away in some imaginary place. These witches and wizards that eat beer soup live right here on the Lower Rhine, in Holland, and in the Lowlands. You can encounter them there every night. These children sitting under the pear tree only remember the stories of Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Red Cap because they have seen them in the movie theaters. They have so completely forgotten the beautiful fairy tales of Dickens and Hoff that they would not be able to tell them to their own children. But the images of the witch's soup spoon carved from the bone of a dead man and the yellow spider with the hairy belly creeping over the magic book toward the fly with the singed wings. These images will never disappear. Dear brother, let me summarize everything that I have tried to communicate to you so far. The next time you come here, you can easily verify for yourself that I am not making things up. In fact, I have understood things and taken pains to be very objective and realistic, only considering those things that are very evident. Mother is extremely well liked by all of the people that she knows, by people of every sex and every age. Animals have this same remarkable love for her, and it even appears as if plants share this as well. They bloom more beautifully and last much longer in her home than I have observed in any other house. Her favorite animals are cats, toads, and billy goats. Her favorite plants are poisonous mushrooms and poisonous flowers. It is certain that she can successfully remove warts, freckles, barley cones, and other bad things. People travel from all over to see her. She is very robust and healthy despite her great age and so sharp and intellectual that people think she has a fountain of youth potion. She seems immune to accidents, while at the turn of a hand appears capable of making some people sick and wishing bad luck on others. On the other hand, she can wish them luck as well. She has a peculiar fondness for mythological creatures, prepares remarkable ointments, and has a collection of old brooms. During certain hours at the full moon, she goes into a trance condition in which her spirit is able to travel far away from this earth. Less than a hundred years ago, only a tenth of these things would have been enough to have her burned at the stake. Meanwhile, today, we are so infinitely clever and educated that we turn sympathetic smiles upon those delusional enough to believe in witches. The truth is that today there are over a hundred thousand witches and wizards in America and in European cities. They are making excellent money. Almost every street has its own astrologer, card reader, palm reader, or fortune teller. The theosophists and other mystic sects grow like mushrooms all over, blooming at times into powerful religious communities. I recently attended a theosophical assembly and sat in the back. The president gave a lecture, and there were over a hundred people there. Oh, yes, it was a serious educational class about the differences between white magic and black magic, where the latter was strongly condemned. 
Not one of these people had the slightest idea that the origin of the term black magic was a comical printing error during the Middle Ages when the word necromancer was misspelled as negromancer. There are more miracle workers in our day than ever before, and they all do an excellent business. Only a few days ago, Jesus from the Lower Rhine sent a postcard to all his patients, saying that for 20 marks he would touch them with his holy body. Business was good, and he went back home to Switzerland and retired. This honorable man had scarcely been a year in our city and earned over a million marks. The blissful public runs to all these swindlers and enlightened congregations, yet becomes deeply offended when you ask them to believe in witches. They will gladly wrap a sacred Indian cloak around themselves without feeling how strange and unsuited the Indian teachings are to the West. They don't have the slightest idea that the small grain of truth that does lay in these swindles is descended out of the Middle Ages, let alone that the Middle Ages corrupted the wisdom of the Gnostics, who in turn got it from the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and the Akkadians. The Gothic, that was once in the fine arts, is now again coming into fashion. I have only the highest scorn for it in many ways, by the way. That is why I became suspicious and compiled for you these examples. Such naive credibility is conclusively the child of our time. Nevertheless, dear brother, I am curious what you make of the following occurrences. We had just sat down around Mother's table for the evening meal, eight men and women. We were speaking about Indian magic tricks, and one of the gentlemen showed us the well-known needle trick. He stuck a long hat pin into his back and out under his arm. He then made his arm into an attractive pin cushion. The Indian faker can do this to perfection and apparently does not feel any discomfort from the nails, glowing coals, and other things. I have seen this trick performed often and even tried it myself a few times. It is really a simple trick and requires only a little practice and willpower. The slight injury to the skin does hurt, but is bearable. People naturally have favorite spots in which to stick the pins and needles. A favorite spot is one with a lot of fat under the skin that is less sensitive. They laugh when sticking needles, nails, and shoestrings into the spot. It always amazes people. The only real danger is of getting blood poisoning when the wound becomes infected by naive self-torturers. It does occasionally happen. Stab one of these dazzlers unexpectedly with a sharp pin and you can bet they will feel it and yell out. That gave me the idea of performing a little experiment with Mother. She is extremely sensitive to the smallest pain and cries out loudly when she pokes herself on the finger with a needle. Now she has a small pale birthmark on the side of her neck. One night, as I gave her a goodnight kiss, I put both arms around her neck and poked her there with a small needle. She didn't feel a thing. The next night I had the opportunity to push the small needle in almost to the bone in the same spot. 
she didn't notice anything. <coughs> Excuse me. You know that before executing witches, they would strip and torture them with needles, looking for so-called witch marks on the body that were completely insensitive to pain. Our mother has such a spot, and an old-time judge would very quickly pass judgment on her. That same evening, I was able to again observe mother during the full moon. I sat hidden on the sofa in the corner. I saw the door to her bedroom open, saw her come out and sit in her chair in the middle of the moonlight. I saw her pushing her silver hair back under her black scarf as she stared out the open window. She looked wonderful, our mother. She sat there, unaware. The street below was dead still, and there was a deep quiet in the room. Then Mother's cricket began to sing, nice and gentle, much more softly than it usually does. It was as if the animal were afraid to break the sacred stillness. Suddenly, its shrill voice broke off. I glanced around the room, looking for the little thing. At the moment, as my eyes once more fell on Mother, I saw something spring out, come from her, from near her, from over her. I don't really know. It wasn't the cricket. Oh, no, it was large and gray. It landed on the carpet without making a sound. Then it sprang up onto the back of the small couch by the open windowsill. It crouched there for a little while on the yellow fabric. That's when I saw that it was a huge cat. One minute the gray animal was sitting there, and the next it sprang out through the open window. I was involuntarily frightened and still hadn't heard the slightest sound. I immediately hurried to the window. Then I hesitated because I heard a loud purring right next to my ear. I turned around, and there, near me, stood Bast, the goddess statue with the cat's head the one that Mother claimed would purr at times. I didn't hear it anymore. Apparently, it had only been my imagination. I continued to the window and looked out. The cat sat there under the window. Then it slowly got up, paced a bit, and sprang from the first story down to the stones below without apparent injury. It didn't seem to be aware of me as I ran down the stairs, opened the house door, and went out onto the street. I saw the cat running a few doors down and followed it at a distance. It went through the streets as if it knew where it was going. It didn't move like most cats do around houses. Instead, it moved quietly and proudly down the middle of the empty street. I wondered which house it would be going to and where it lived. Even though Mother liked cats, she never had any in her house. I finally understood where it was going. The animal was going straight to the churchyard. Perhaps it was wild, I thought. There, in front of the cemetery, I heard a couple of drunken voices. I saw two gentlemen in a beautiful brown dachshund chasing after the cat, which never made a sound as it ran quietly on its way. The cheeky little dashing sprang at it. In the bright moonlight, I could see perfectly how it seized the top of the left ear with its teeth. But the cat shook him off, sprang to the side, and attacked. 
In a moment, I saw the cat on top of the hound clawing into its neck. The poor fellow became so frightened that it ran around trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. The cat was riding the bow-legged hound horseback around the cemetery. Behind the bushes, you could hear a pitiful howling and whining. Then the dachshund came running up to the men, covered in blood with its tail between its legs, very ashamed of its disgraceful defeat. It looked so comical that I had to laugh good-naturedly in sympathy along with the men. I went on to the graves, but the cat had already gone, so I went slowly back home. As I stepped back into Mother's living room, I saw her still sitting there in the same motionless position. I walked up to her quietly, kissed her on the forehead. That's when I saw the top of her left ear was bleeding, exactly on the same spot where the dachshund had bitten the ear of the gray cat. What did it mean? What did it mean? Mother had been sitting there, there on that exact spot without stirring during all this time, just like all the other nights. But what of her spirit? And what had I seen going out of her? The gray cat had come out of her. It was our mother. Put rhyme or reason to that, dear brother, if you can. She was the gray cat that ran among the graves. I came to breakfast with a fluttering heart the next morning. Perhaps it had all only been a dream. There sat Mother quietly drinking her tea. On the top of her left ear was a bit of small hard plaster. What did you do to your ear? I asked. I don't know, she answered, completely unembarrassed. I must have hurt myself and not been aware of it. My pillow was all bloody this morning. It sounded so completely harmless, so completely innocent that she couldn't be pretending. It appears that our mother is a werewolf and doesn't know it. One evening I was sitting alone with mother. We chatted for a long time, heartily drinking our customary evening wine, evening glass of wine. Without noticing, I had already opened a second and then a third bottle. You're really drinking today, she said. Really, I replied, I hadn't noticed. It's okay, she nodded. Drink up. It makes me happy that you enjoy the taste of my wine. Mother drank much less than I that night. She didn't have any more than two, at the most three small glasses. That night, for no reason at all, I drank four bottles and then did something that I have never done in my life. I drank alone. After I went back to my room, I was suddenly thirsty for a highball. I got some whiskey and a couple body, bottles of soda and mixed myself one. I needed to wait a few hours for the moon to come out, so I sat in my room smoking and drinking whiskey, one after the other. Then the time came to go to my observation post. I felt completely clear-headed and refreshed. On the contrary, it seemed that I could see and think much more clearly than normal. Soon mother came. She sat in her armchair again like she had done last night. She sat there unmoving in the moonlight with her black scarf over her hair. Then I suddenly saw an old broom leaning against her chair. I didn't know how it had gotten there, but it was there. 
I rubbed my eyes, got up and went over to it. I grabbed the broomstick with both hands to convince myself that it was really there. In front of her there on the table, I noticed a small round jar. I opened it. There was a green ointment inside. Slowly, I went back to my place. Then I saw Mother raise both arms and remove the scarf from her head. Like the other time, she pulled out the hairpins and let her hair down. She grabbed the broom, took the little jar, and rubbed some of the green ointment on the broomstick. I don't know how it happened, but suddenly she was astride it, floating in the air. Then she flew out through the open window. I heard her voice as she cried, Up and away, there and nowhere else. Then I saw her riding through the air. There were others riding on broomsticks and fire tongs as well. They were there in the clouds and in the fog. I couldn't see them clearly, but Mother was in front, in front of them all. She led the entire group to a hill that was covered with short elder trees. A buck, a huge buck, stood on the hill in the middle of the clearing. It was the Andalusian buck from the Sierra Nevada. His short horns glowed and glinted over the others. The witches danced in a circle, their faces turned away. Ha, ha, they cried, devil, devil, spring here, spring there, hop here, hop there, play here, play there. I saw this as though through a hazy veil, far away across the meadow on the hill. A mother still sat there in the moonlight in front of me, unmoving in her chair. I don't know when I fell asleep that night. I woke early the next morning, but it was already light. I wiped the sleep from my eyes, found myself curled up, freezing, on the sofa. I stood up. Mother was long gone, but near her chair stood the old broom and the jar of green ointment was on the table. I started laughing out loud. Slowly I walked through the room, went up the stairs, undressed, washed up, went to bed, and slept till noon. That, dear brother, is everything. I don't know whether it will convince you or not. Do whatever you want. Just consider it carefully. Three weeks later, Dr. Casper Crazy Cat received this reply. We want you to know, dear brother-in-law, that we were married yesterday. My husband gave me your long letter to read shortly after he received it. We read through it together. At first, we laughed and considered it all unbelievable. But then, I must say that we took things much more seriously the more we read. Both of us have ser very seriously considered what you have shared about your mother. We have read your letter again and again. To make it short, dear brother-in-law, you are completely right about your mother. Your brother and I are in completely complete agreement with you and thoroughly convinced. Only, dear brother-in-law, we take it all differently than you do. We are married, and I hope to give my husband children, perhaps a couple of girls. I have no greater wish than that they might be such lovely, pretty witches like your mother. Dr. Casper Crazy Cat read that and thoughtfully shook his head. And that's uh, the end of that story. Till next week.